All right, we are continuing our study of the book of Hebrews here on the Listener's Commentary. And in this session, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to begin, let's set this in context. Up to this point, the author of Hebrews has made two specific points so far. The first is, is that the Son is superior to the angels, and by implication, that also means he's uh, superior to the revelation that came through them. That's the first point. The Son is superior to angels and the revelation that came through them, simply by virtue of who he is as the Son and his appointment thus as heir of all things. So that's point one. The second point the author has made is that the Son was obligated to be made human in order to provide salvation. If he is so superior, and if he's so great, and if he's more powerful and more glorious than the angels, why does he look so inglorious and so lowly? Well, that's because he had to be made human in order to provide salvation. So that's the second big point he's made thus far. Now, from here, he begins to zoom in then on specifically Moses. Since the revelation that was given through the angels was the Mosaic law, this really entails then seeing that Jesus is superior to the law of Moses. And he's going to really then focus on that theme throughout the, the remainder of the book of Hebrews. Uh, but first, what he does is he's going to zero in on Moses specifically and demonstrate Jesus' superiority to Moses himself. He'll do that here in 3, 1 through 6. Then that will be followed up in the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 by an extended warning not to imitate those who initially followed Moses in the Exodus, but then they persisted in unbelief and they missed out on God's rest. And so we get a comparison of Jesus to Moses, showing his superiority there, and then another extended exhortation and warning. So here we continue the explanation by comparing Jesus with Moses. And the main point really is to say that the man Jesus, the human being Jesus, is God's son versus the man Moses, who's God's servant. And so since Jesus is God's son, that's greater than just being a servant in God's household. Being faithful to Jesus, therefore, is absolutely necessary if you want to enter God's rest and be part of God's family. So he begins in chapter 3, verse 1, by saying, Therefore, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, and that therefore means he's building off of what he's already established. He's drawing together what he said so far, the sonship idea of Jesus and the necessity of the son being made human. And he's working up to the point that the human Jesus is actually the son who is heir and ruler over the household of the people of God. So therefore, building off of what he said so far, and he then directly addresses the original readers. Notice he calls them holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling. And so he addresses them as holy brothers and sisters. That is, saints, God's holy people, God's holy family. And the, the basic meaning of the word holy is to be set apart or distinct or different. It came to really be a belonging term for God's people. It's, it's equivalent really to the word saints. The word saints that shows up elsewhere in the New Testament is a plural of the same root word here in a slightly different form of the word holy. And so these are God's holy people, holy family, brothers and sisters. He also calls them partakers of a heavenly calling. That is, sharers in, participants in, 
God's calling, God's calling of them, God's calling of his people. So they are participants or partakers of the heavenly calling. And these two titles really speak to the dignity and seriousness and honor of their position and really our position as God's people in Christ. So don't take this lightly. This is who you are. You're God's holy family. You're partakers of the calling from heaven. And so after directly addressing them, then the author says, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. And so he directly addresses the original readers and calls them to consider, which really has the idea of to look closely at, to fix your mind on is the idea. And he says, consider, fix your mind on Jesus. And recall that in the previous section, the author introduced the word Jesus, that name, in a very specific context, namely the humanness of the Son. The Son had to be made human, and that's where he gets called Jesus. So set your mind, fix your mind on the Son, Jesus, who is the human being. And he describes Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession. The word apostle simply refers to an authorized representative. So in this case, Jesus is the authorized ambassador, the authorized representative of God. And then he also calls him high priest. And that title, high priest, is applied to Jesus 10 times in the book of Hebrews. It's actually unique to Hebrews in calling Jesus that. And the author had uh, introduced that idea in chapter 2, verse 17. He mentions it here as a title, and then he'll pick it up and develop it more fully at the end of chapter 4, end of chapter 5, and then it'll dominate the book beginning in chapter 7 all the way to the end. So this idea of Jesus being the high priest, it's going to be Uh, totally central to the message of the book of Hebrews as this book begins to unfold more and more. And Jesus described here as the high priest of our confession. That word confession will show up again in 414 when he begins to talk about the idea of high priesthood again. So he sees them as connected. The basic idea of the word confession Uh, is to agree with or to say the same thing as. It's actually the same word that's typically used when talking about confessing our sins. Agreeing with God that this thing we did was a sin, and so we say that, we agree that with God and admit that. But in a context like this, it's not talking about our sin, it's the confession of our faith. That is, we, what we've said we believed. And so Jesus is the high priest of what we've said we believe, what we've confessed to believe. So the author here has called the readers, including us, to take a close look at the man Jesus. And then what he's going to do is he's going to go on to point out some things about Jesus that he wants the readers, including us, to see. And he's going to do so by comparing Jesus to Moses. And so this is what he says about Jesus in verse 2. He, that is Jesus, was faithful to him, that is God, who appointed him Jesus. So we've got to get those pronouns right. So Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his house. So that sets up the comparison with Moses. Jesus was faithful to his task that God gave him, just as Moses was faithful in his task that God gave him. 
In fact, this verse alludes to Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, in which God describes Moses as being faithful in all of God's house. And that's why it's worded the way it is. Moses was faithful in all God's house, just as Numbers 12, 7 said. Uh, an important note here is the word translated appointed. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. The word for appoint there is uh, from poieo in Greek. And that's the verb that's commonly translated to do or to even make. And some, therefore, have used this verse to apply uh, that God made Jesus. That's the Arian view that showed up very early on in church history and actually is still maintained by the Jehovah's Witnesses today. And in combating such a view that Jesus was actually a created being, not God himself, many people in the early church actually said this This refers to the incarnation, which is actually quite possible, uh, that particularly in context of chapter 2, where we're talking about the humanness of Jesus, that's possible. So, for example, you get an early church father by the name of Athanasius who said, For when was Christ made except when, like us, he partook of flesh and blood? And so you see Athanasius there uh, explaining this word make here to refer to the incarnation. And while theologically that's possible, and certainly uh, contextually it fits a little bit with the preceding context, the simple fact is, is the word translated appoint simply can legitimately be translated. That just can mean to appoint. It means to make, it means to do, but it also means to appoint, and that really seems to be the meaning here. For example, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6, translates this very same word as God appointed Moses and Aaron to their offices. Or Mark chapter 3, verse 14, uses this same word to talk about Christ appointing the twelve. Acts 2.36 actually speaks of God appointing Jesus as both Lord and Christ. And so the idea of appoint is just one of the ways the verb poieo is translated. It's just one of the things it means, and that seems to be the best translation here. And so you just need to be aware, though, there's been some debate around that word because of other ways the word is used. And so God appointed Jesus to his task, and Jesus was faithful to that, just as Moses was faithful in all his house. And just to clarify, whose house? It's God's house. You can note that very clearly by the allusion to Numbers 12, 7, that we're talking about God's house. So Moses was faithful in God's house. And so the primary point here of this verse is just to emphasize that in this regard, in their faithfulness, Jesus and Moses were similar. Now he's going to go on and uh, clarify exactly what their role was in relationship to God's house, because though they were similar in their faithfulness to God, their role or relation to God's house was different. And so the author continues in verse 3 to say, For he, that is Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. And so he's going to play off this idea of house and that's because the word house sort of has a double meaning, a double reference in uh, the ancient world. House could refer to a literal physical house, the building in which a family lived, or it could refer to a family, a household. And so house and household is the same word. And so playing off of the idea house, he wants to 
uh, emphasize there that Jesus has more glory than Moses, just so much as the builder of a literal physical house has than the house itself. And this is a major statement for any Jew. So the author of this book, assuming he's a Jew, uh, which makes the most sense, right, because of who it's written to, to the Hebrews, this is a major statement to say that Jesus deserves more glory than Moses himself. I mean, Moses was the faithful servant of God. Moses was the one that God spoke to face to face. Moses was the one that led God's people to their redemption uh, by God's power. Moses was the one through whom God gave his covenant to the people. But as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. In fact, he says, Jesus has the same relation to God's house as a builder has to the house he built. By way of analogy, what's more glorious, a beautiful house or the builder who designed and built it, right? Um, and so the builder has more honor and glory than the house itself. That's the same with Jesus. And the implication that he'll make clear down in verse 5 is that Moses was faithful, but he's also merely just a member of God's household. Jesus, however, is over the household. He's the builder of the household. In fact, on this point of builder and house, the author continues in verse 4 with just sort of a general truth, a truth that some even see just almost as parenthetical here. It's just sort of an undergirding general principle. Notice what he says in verse 4. For every house is built by someone right? Someone's got to build a house, but the builder of all things is God. And so this is just a general truth about the nature of building things, emphasizing that even though there's a bunch of human builders, God is the builder of everything. And it would seem in the context of Hebrews thus far, and in the specific context of this paragraph, that the implication left unstated, but implied here is that Jesus is the one who's building everything because Jesus is God, God's son. That's not stated explicitly here, but that seems to be the implication here in context of this general point. And thus, as the builder, Jesus is worthy of more glory. So now with that then, he comes to the final statement of the full conclusion of this comparison or contrast between Jesus and Moses. Look at verse 5. He says, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken of later. So now we're back to Numbers chapter 12, verse 7 again, emphasizing Moses' faithfulness, but doing so as a servant. That Moses is a servant in God's house, and in that role, he was faithful. And the word servant here is actually unique it's the only place in the New Testament this word shows up. It's therapon in Greek. And the reason it's used here is because that's the word that's translated servant in the Septuagint version of Numbers 12, 7. And it's actually used in other places in the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, for Moses as well. And so Moses was a honored servant who proved trustworthy in his role as a honored servant in God's house. That's the point. The second half there, verse 5, then suggests that Moses' role as that servant in the household of God was preliminary. 
and that it pointed forward to things that were eventually to come, right? The, he's a testimony of those, thing, of those things which were to be spoken later. So his role as a faithful servant was important, honored, dignified, but preliminary, and actually was a signpost to things that would have eventually come to pass in the future. So that's who Moses was. He was faithful as a servant. What about Jesus? Well, verse 6, but Christ, Messiah, that's the idea, was faithful as a son over his house. Notice the contrast. Moses was a servant in the house, but Christ, the Messiah, is son over his house. So we had house and builder, which emphasizes the greater glory of the son. Well, here we get a slightly different version where we get a son versus servant. A servant worked in the house. He worked on behalf of the family, and he could have a high and dignified and important role, a major and significant role. He could rule other servants in the house. That's the way servants uh, worked in the ancient world. So being a servant in and of itself wasn't necessarily a lowly thing. Uh, It just was you had a specific role within the house. And so the servant worked in the house, but the son, who is the heir of all things, was over the house because of his status and his role. So the point here being made is that Moses was an important servant in God's house, but Jesus, Jesus is the son and the heir who is over the whole thing. And ultimately then, that's why he deserves greater honor and greater glory because of his status and his role as son and heir and thus builder and ruler of the house. And then with that, our author comes back to a final statement of appeal that really becomes a launching pad for this extended exhortation in the next section. He says, whose house we are. Remember, the word house has this double meaning. House as in physical building or household. Whose house we are, whose household we are, whose family we are, if we hold firmly to our confidence and the boast of our hope. And the word if here is important. Actually, it's an important theme in Hebrews because they're considering turning back on their faith and returning to Judaism. And so if, and this particular word for if, there are two words for if in Greek, this particular word in this construction expresses a real condition. If this is the case, and we're not sure it is, so it's sort of up to you. You got to decide, right? If we hold firmly to our confidence and the boast of our hope to that which we cling to in confidence and to that which we boast about our hope is in, namely Jesus himself, right? And all that he did. If we hang on to that, hold firmly to that, then uh, we are part of God's household. And if we don't, we're not part of God's household because God's household now revolves around God's son, whose name is Jesus. And so this last line here of verse 6 becomes the launching pad for the extended exhortation that follows in the rest of chapter 3 and 4 that we'll look at in our next couple sessions. But before we leave this section, let me just uh, really point out there's one actual command in this section. And so while it's primarily explanation, it does have an exhortation. It does have a command, and that command is consider Jesus. Fix your gaze, fix your mind on Jesus. He's introduced the Son in chapter 1. He's introduced 
him as the person, the human Jesus in chapter 2. Now he calls us to fix our gaze on Jesus as the son who is over all of God's household. And so this human being, Jesus himself, is the sovereign son that the scriptures had promised. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one, the anointed one who was to come that is over all of God's family. And as a man, he was tested and tempted, as the author pointed out in chapter 2, verse 18. And so fix your eyes on him and trust him. He'll actually come back to that very same theme in chapter 12, when he's really in his final exhortation to call us to say, now now that I've laid out for you who Jesus is and how great he is and how much he's accomplished, keep your eyes fixed on him. And so that idea of considering Jesus, fixing your gaze on him begins here. And really throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, when he sets out to explain scripture to us and explain his message to us, he's going to help us do that, seeing who Jesus is, seeing what Jesus accomplished, and seeing how important it is that we remain faithful to him. All right, that is chapter 3, 1 through 6 on this session of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for those of you who support this ministry. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do so by going to listenerscommentary.com clicking the Give button and setting up a one-time or a recurring monthly donation right there. All donations are received in partnership with World Family Mission. Thanks a ton for your support.